Hello, and welcome to episode 31 of the Venture Games Podcast. I'm Chris Quaidu, a venture partner at Griffin Gaming Partners, one of the leading gaming-focused VC firms, and content acquisition lead at Andreessen-backed Carry First, the leading African mobile games publisher. Today, I'm happy to introduce my next guest, Dennis Dyack, a 30-year games industry veteran and the co-founder and CEO at Apocalypse Studios. How's it going, Dennis? Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. Sure. Thanks for joining me. So, you know, you've been in the industry for quite some time. So just to kick things off, for those folks out there who are less familiar with you, do you mind just walking through sort of your professional background, specifically before your time at Apocalypse? Yeah, absolutely. I've been in the industry for quite a long time. And I founded a, a company called Silicon Knights that was in the industry for 27 years, known for games like Original Creations, uh, Blood Omen Legacy of Cain, that was uh, on the PlayStation, did extremely well. We also worked on Eternal Darkness Sanity's Requiem with Nintendo. Nintendo bought a minority stake it, at Silicon Knights back then, then went on to work on Metal Gear Solid Twin Snakes uh, and worked uh, with both Miyamoto-san and Kojima-san on that it was super fun and have been making, you know, games for quite a while. And it's been, I, I would say, quite a shift since I first started in the industry going to GDC when there was like only 50 people there. Now it's like thousands of people. And now with the founding of Apocalypse in 2018, where we're creating Deadhouse Sonata, the one thing that I can say, though, that I, and I'm excited to talk about it today is sort of focusing on the medium and taking the medium in different directions has been something that I think that overall has been a consistent thread through all the games I've worked on, despite the 30 years in the industry mm -hmm. and the, this gargantuan tidal wave of changes that have happened. Awesome. You know, when you actually entered the industry, you know, back several years ago, what was the industry actually like? And, you know, obviously, I don't think anyone could have predicted the industry turning into what it is today. But yeah. what sort of did you expect as you looked out into the future? You know, where did you think the industry was going to go back then? Yeah, that's a, that's a really, it's a really good question. And I had my perceptions of what the industry was compared to when I joined it were com completely wrong. Um, so uh, just a bit more background on me. When I was in school, so I've got three degrees, and my first degree is in physical education. And I went to a university in Canada. I'm from Canada. Mm -hmm. I live in the Niagara Falls area. And the local university, Brock University, is the best university for wrestling in Canada. So mm -hmm. I was a varsity wrestler. I did a bunch of Taekwondo, martial arts, Jeet Kune Do, all that stuff. So my first degree is in phys ed. Mm -hmm. And I then went into computer science because I wanted to make video games. And back then, I, I just didn't think I had the tools. I loved games. I had no idea. So I was like, okay, I'm going to get a computer science degree so I can learn how to program. Mm -hmm. And then I went on to do a master's degree in neural networks. And you know, some artificial intelligence and actually some user interfaces. And so while I was doing this, I then, we started making our first game while I was going, finishing my master's degree. And I flew down to California thinking that I was massively underqualified mm -hmm. only to get there to find out that 
almost no one had a computer science degree that the people who were making the games were people who just loved what they were doing. And I would say a bunch of people working out of their garage just for the pure sake of loving it. And I met so many people who are like back then or just legends of the industry, you know, people who created games like Archon. So I was wrong. I thought that's what the industry was like, but the industry mm -hmm. was just purely made up of people who just loved what they were doing, mm -hmm. which is ironic because we connected recently, everyone, just a bit of background at this gamer conference, yeah. which is a blockchain conference. And once again, my, my expectations were completely wrong. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what to expect. And when I went to this blockchain conference, I was expecting a bunch of data scientists mm -hmm. and all of these hardcore, I would say, programmers and mathematicians only to get there to find it to be in exactly in the same spot mm -hmm. where that original GDC was. These are people who just love blockchain. Yeah, And uh, I found it really refreshing and I love that conference. So everything goes full circle. And so to answer your question, once I got to that GDC, I really had no expectations of where the industry was going to go because I was just so, I guess, overwhelmed by how much just the enthusiasm was. And I knew I loved it. And I just wanted to be there. And as the industry has gone from, you know, I would say these very small groups back then, EA was very small. Mm -hmm. And it was like an artist first company to, the, you know, to what it is today, you know, a, a mega corporation and all of these other groups coming in. And now it's the industry continues to get bigger and bigger. I, I don't think I could have predicted at all where it would have went. Now, some of the things like I think I did do fairly accurately is where the general direction of the industry is going mm -hmm. and how through looking at previous mediums like film, television, or radio, or some of the other arts, you can look at a consistent pattern over years on where things are going to go. And I I think that's interesting and that's exciting stuff to talk about these days. And so one thing that you mentioned, right, is that a lot of what brought the folks that you saw into the gaming industry early was sort of just a passion and love for gaming. Yeah. You know, despite how large the industry has gotten, I think that is still something that you see quite commonly, right? Like there are a lot of folks in the gaming industry who just really love games. Yeah. And so what are some of the games that you are playing today? And then just throughout your career and your history as a gamer, you know, what are some memorable games that you played that you really loved? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So recently, and I play all kinds of games, just a bit more background on sort mm -hmm. of my personality and, and makeup. I feel it is incumbent upon me to immerse myself in these mediums. So I read a lot. I watch a lot of content movies mm -hmm. and play tons of games so right now and i would say over the last three to four years maybe five years i've been playing a ton of indie games mm -hmm. so right now the one i've been playing a lot is something called cosmo tier mm -hmm. which which is this kind of 2d construction space battling game i i love it you know i've been playing of course some dwarf fortress which i'm a huge fan of it's big influence on my career i love that game They'll, and then with the new release on Steam, finally, the guys are making some money, which I think is awesome. I'm so excited for them. But I've been playing just a ton of ton of games. But mm -hmm. I would say if I was to pick what are some of the most influential favorite games of all time, you know, games like Resident Evil 2 mm -hmm. 
had a massive influence on me, helped me create Eternal Darkness. I loved sort of the, it was an influence because I played Resident Evil 2. We're getting ready to pitch Nintendo. And I flew down the Seattle Nintendo of America. And we had this one game pitch that had nothing to do with Eternal Darkness. And Mm -hmm. rather than, I was a lot younger then, rather than really work on this pitch, (laughs) I stayed up for three days in a row and played Resident (laughs) Evil 2 and finished it. And I just love the different stories. Mm-hmm. And when I got there, they're like, Dennis, you look like hell. <laughs> I was like, I know. I was getting, but I, I was like, still ready for this pitch. This game's going to be cool. And like, why do you look so tired? I And I started talking about Resident Evil. And they're like, yeah, we love that game too. And then we just started talking about it. And literally <laughs> come the end of the day, they were like, why don't we make a game like that? It can't be a, a clone. Nintendo would never do a clone of anything. Mm-hmm. But if you're so impassioned by all these things that we're talking about, why don't you come back in two weeks and pitch something else? So I was like, that's a great idea. So we went back and I was thinking, let's let's do Lovecraft. Let's do a story with multiple characters. Mm-hmm. And Eternal Darkness was born, came back, pitched that. And you know, certainly Resident Evil, a huge influence on me. You know, World of Warcraft. There's just so many huge titles, but I guess one that I put a ton of time in that betrays a lot, I guess, is Eve Online. Mm-hmm. I put in so much time, many, many years into that <laughs> game. And it's very hardcore for people who know about it. Yeah, I haven't played it in a long time, but I, I love that game. But I would say there are games beyond number that I've played. I'm mm-hmm. constantly playing all the time, trying to find out even games that people consider really bad, I'll try out mm-hmm. to see if there's any interesting mechanics. Is there interesting artwork or is there some kind of you know narrative that's really genuine and all, all of these things? Because I think it's we can always learn from things. So I, that's really what I'm doing. And it's kind of an excuse. I love games, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I love reading. I'm I'm influenced by all of these different mediums. And I think that, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of giants and we should always try to incorporate, you know, all of the things that we learn culturally into these kind of things and try to, you know, create something that will legitimately entertain people and, you know, move them to catharsis where they feel good after playing the things that you create. So that's the hope. And anyway, so those are some of the games. There's a ton more I could name. So, uh, you know, the first game they named was definitely an indie, right? But you named a number of more mainstream games, right? And I think someone who has like sort of observed your career would definitely observe that, you know, you've probably tended more towards indie games overall. So what is it about indie games that has sort of attracted you to that as far as most of the games that you've worked on throughout your career? Yeah, great, great observation. Good question. The whole idea of trying to do something new. Mm-hmm. and I. This is not, it's just a, a perception these days. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the AAA game space has become so stale, mm-hmm. I find it very boring. Mm-hmm. And what really got me into video games is, I, I guess it was Ultima 3 I was playing on my Atari ST, mm-hmm. I think, way back in the day when I was in high school. So it's really dating myself. Mm-hmm. And I was stuck. I was, you know, had my whole party in my ship. And I was avoiding this whirlpool and I just could not for days, I could not find out where to go. And then mm-hmm. suddenly I got tired and my ship got sucked into the whirlpool and it opened up to this new continent where the game opened up and I could finally go somewhere. That epiphany to me was 
something that I love so much. And it, it, I was like, wow, this is, I was reading a lot at the time, discovering books like Elric and, you know, all kinds of great literature. But I remember thinking a book can never do this. A movie can never do this. We have so much potential in this industry. And I was still really young back then. Mm -hmm. And way before I started computer science, I, I just felt that that particular feeling, if I could help others have that feeling, that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And when I look at indie games, regardless of budget, they're trying to do all these insane things. Mm -hmm. And if I can discover anything that's interesting there that people are doing, that is much more exciting to me than something that looks hyper-realistic and then just has really horrible gameplay mm -hmm. or just a really boring story or it's just run of the mill cookie cutter. And it's kind of, it's kind of ironic because the stuff that we work on, I, I want super high triple A fidelity and everything mm -hmm. we do, but I would hope that if people look back on my gameology, that there is a consistent theme of trying to do things that have never been done before. And I think I feel comfortable in saying that Pretty much most of the games that I've worked on, we've tried something new, particularly with, you know, Legacy of Kane or Eternal Darkness, you know, Metal Gear, so many, Two Human, so many, so many games out there. So, yeah. So I want to actually dive a bit deeper there, but first, you know, on your background, right? So, you, you know, you've mentioned, you know, some legendary folks that you've worked with. And you also worked directly with Nintendo. I think Nintendo to a lot of people, like a lot of consumers, right? Like everyone knows Nintendo. You know, everyone's played multiple or at least one Nintendo game or knows of it. But I think the business itself of Nintendo is somewhat enigmatic to people, right? And mm -hmm. so what was the experience like for you actually working alongside Nintendo and some of these legendary folks in the industry? So. It was inspiring, humbling, but more than anything else, I would say educational in the mm -hmm. sense of culture shock. I did not know, unlike a lot of video game people mm -hmm. who are enamored with Japan and like, mm -hmm. don't get me wrong, I was into martial arts and I love samurais and martial arts, mm -hmm. but I had really no, I didn't really spend a lot of time focusing on like modern culture in Japan. So mm -hmm. when I went there in my expectations of what it would be like were completely wrong again. Mm -hmm. And what I found in Japan, which I love about it, and especially working with Miyamoto-san and Kojima-san, mm -hmm. was that they're true artists and they work super hard. And where I would say here in the West, we work hard, but I would say, if anything, we're always trying to create technology to make our job easier. And we're trying to use that technology to scale. Where I would say in Japan, it's purely an art form. And so I'll give you one example. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, right after we finished Eternal Darkness and we're working on Metal Gear Solid Twin Snakes with Kojima-san, I could not figure out how they made that game look so good because the number of polygons that they had in Metal Gear hardware-wise were like, these look like they're pre-rendered and they're not, they're real-time models. How, how did that ever possibly happen? And when we were creating the models for Eternal Darkness, we were really, the polygons were limited. And it turns out, once I started working with Kojima-san, I asked him, I said, how did you do this? And he's like, oh, we didn't. So we'd create one model, make it look the best we could do. 
he would create a model for every camera angle. Mm. It would always look good. And I was like, wow, oh, I never would have thought to do that because it's just not within our nature. Mm -hmm. And the same, you know, I think goes for a lot of Japanese developers where they really look at it like a craft Mm -hmm. and they feel that they work for the consumer, which is the biggest thing that I learned working with Miyamoto and Kojima-san is like we work for gamers. And I've been in many meetings, high pressure meetings with everyone where they really care that gamers are going to go away loving their game. Mm-hmm. That's all they care about. They'll stay up all night for months and years. And and I'm not saying that doesn't exist in other places, but it certainly, in my opinion, is not as prevalent as it is in Japan, which makes, you know, sort of the Japanese market very, very special. And, and I think that's what makes, you know, Miyamoto-san and Kojima-san so very good at their craft. And, <laughs> you know regardless of how hard it got and how hard you worked, mm-hmm. I, I I have to admit it was just never more inspiring because as hard as we were always working on say Eternal Darkness and mm-hmm. Metal Gear, man, those guys were working just <laughs> as hard and they were there just as late, even yeah. if later. So it was very interesting. It was a, a great experience and just trying to, I've always tried to meld sort of Western thinking with that kind of creative mm-hmm. thinking from the East and it's it's interesting. I think it it yields interesting results, which hopefully makes our game stand out a little bit anyway. Sure. So. No, that's really awesome that you got to work with like, you know, truly some of the most legendary folks in the industry. So throughout your career, you know, you've sort of mentioned you've implemented a lot of like new technologies or new techniques or just different things than what a lot of folks in the industry were doing. So one thing actually that stuck out to me is, and you know, you talked about this recently with Dead House Sonata, but also, you know, previously earlier in your career, you've always worked closely with like academics. And I just find that like pretty fascinating that you've always been sort of at least you know, abreast as to what are some of the like newer things being developed from an academic standpoint. So how have you thought about that throughout your career? How has it actually impacted uh, you and the the way that you work? Yeah, I'm I'm a huge believer in academic foundations to really build upon and give back. So going back to that story of going to GDC for the first time and realizing that, you know, a lot, I, I thought, that I would need all of this education. And then I found out most people didn't even have a computer science degree and they, mm-hmm. they learned to program on their own. And there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And But the inspiration there was overwhelming. But the problem with that is you need a foundation to build upon. And so that's why I've always leaved, leaned in heavily into academia mm-hmm. because I think if we're going to build upon what we're creating, we have to have a, a firm understanding that's grounded in, I would say, theory that has strong foundations. Mm-hmm. So as an example, I think that when you look at gameplay, what are the academic foundations for gameplay? The only, through the research that I found, and there's still very little of this, unfortunately, starting to, finally starting to come around, but mm-hmm. back in the earliest days, when we did Legacy of Kane, I, I did a, a talk called Engagement Theory, mm-hmm. where I talked about flow and Dr. Zigzant Mahai and psychology, and the sort of the psychology of, you know, putting people into what I would say is that perfect aesthetic experience where you lose track of time. We actually did that in Eternal Darkness. We were testing and we asked people what time it was mm. 
And the more that they were off, we knew that they were actually more engaged mm -hmm. in the game. And gaming's always been about engagement. It's not mm -hmm. about having fun. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's about, can you get that perfect aesthetic experience? Mm -hmm. And that's all based off psychology. And if you look at academics today, starting to happen, but yeah. I still think there needs to be a massive, much more foundation of psychology into game design. Whereas with computer science, we obviously have computer science. So my interest, I guess, as a game developer has been the medium. And, you know, certainly Marshall McLuhan's famous lines of the medium is the message. Mm -hmm. That has been my inspiration. I guess the common tie through everything that I've worked on. And it, I think in order to understand that you have to have, you have to have a sort of solid foundation on academics and talk with a lot of great minds out mm -hmm. there to even put together these theories, because from my experience in the gaming industry, sometimes their academics are accepted, sometimes they're not, but we have all these islands because of all this proprietary information and no one wants to talk to each other. It's starting to change a little bit, but still there's all of these secrets and we have all these islands of ideas. And so I found that academics were one of the few groups that would always talk to each other. Mm -hmm. So with that, I found a common group of people where I could throw out ideas, generally not be laughed at. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes people will laugh, but still, you know, it's, it's, if you're going to try experimental things, you're going to try to do some things differently, then I think it's generally a great group. So finding academic foundations for the theories that you're building, especially for some of the things Apocalypse is working on now, I could not have even begun to think about some of the things we're thinking about now. And it goes back all to the early days of Blood Omen Legacy of Cain. And I'll give one sort of short example. When we were working on Blood Omen Legacy of Cain, back in those days, this is really dating myself now. Mm -hmm. It was an RPG. Mm -hmm. And back then, an RPG for a console. We wanted mm -hmm. to go into the consoles. Never made a console game before. Mm -hmm. All of the RPGs on consoles were made by Japanese developers. Mm -hmm. And we were told... You have no chance. Don't do this. You're going to fail. Mm -hmm. You're not Japanese. And then on top of that, we're doing the game about a vampire. Mm -hmm. And it was a massive anti-hero. And it was definitely not the sort of save the princess kind of story. Everyone right. hates you. Everyone's trying to kill you. You hate yourself, quite <laughs> frankly. You're the only one that can save the world. And when we started developing it, and the PlayStation 1 came out with this new radical technology of a CD-ROM, we realized that with that one change in technology, so I would I would play games like Ultima, which mm -hmm. I love. That was actually ironically done in North America on a PC. Mm -hmm. But on the consoles, if you would play an RPG, whether it be a Final Fantasy, it was all text and you had to read all these novels on these screens, which I hated. I couldn't mm -hmm. stand it. I was like, I cannot, I cannot deal with reading novels <laughs> on these fuzzy pixels yeah. that makes my eyes sore. Mm -hmm. So suddenly with this new technology of the CD-ROM, we could use voice acting. So we did this grand experiment where we said, okay, let's get all Hollywood voice actors and let's get no, let's remove all the text that we can. So the only text that existed was actually in the menus of the game. Mm. Otherwise it was just all voice acting and voiceovers. And I think that created a fundamental shift in the industry where sort of these narrative driven games became, became possible. Mm -hmm. And that was only because we we're, kind of looking at the medium back then and saying, 
what in this new medium can we do? And if you look at the demographics, if you look at where all the games are going, if you can understand the medium, what can you add to where, to where things are going? So that was kind of the epiphany there. And then from that, I've tried to stick to that fundamental, I guess, observation of the medium is the message. So if you understand the medium, create a game that will resonate in that medium, regardless of what it is, regardless of what kind of game it is, regardless of what kind of audience you're looking for. I think that can really, that's a real standout thing. And I think that's what can make a game really stand out. And then are there any examples like throughout your career, either, you know, personally that you were involved in or that you've observed, you know, where maybe this experimentation approach has maybe not worked, you know, the way that you would have liked? Oh yeah, for sure. It's when you get too excited and try to take on too much. Mm -hmm. So as an example, when we're working on Too Human, I think we did a bunch of things that were really great there. Ironically, we had no load times whatsoever. So mm -hmm. we had all asynchronous loading. There was never a load screen in the game. Once you were in the game, we were streaming cinema while you could play in it. But the one thing that we tried to do is we tried to create this... AI driven camera system to be mm -hmm. like a director on top of all this. Mm -hmm. And it was just, that was just too much. It was, yeah. it was very hard for gamers and it probably would have been the right move to be more conservative there mm -hmm. and then put the camera on rails and then maybe look to adjust that dynamic camera afterwards. I think that that really could have improved it. So yeah, you've got to take small steps and I'm always for having big plans, mm -hmm. but just make sure that you're taking it one step at a time. And what I would like to say, it's kind of like that, get the core game plan. This is, you know, directly from Miyamoto-san and Nintendo. What are you doing the most in the game? Make sure that's fun and mm -hmm. engaging. And once you have that, start building around it. That's kind of a guardrail to stop against that. I think if anything, we tried to do too much there, but yeah so things always go wrong in game development that's for sure sure okay so we should probably talk about dead house sonata at some point sure so for those out there who are like less familiar with it you know what is dead house sonata so dead house sonata is a narrative driven action rpg where you play the undead fighting the living so you play vampires revenants ghouls banshees all fighting the living and it's a spiritual successor to Blood Omen Legacy of Cain. And it both is taking all the things that we've learned from Cain, but also taking it in very, very new directions. So it's still in early development. We're, we had a combat demo out last year, 2022. And we're just sort of building those core mechanics and getting ready. It's a free-to-play game. And it's ethically monetized. And there's just... We have done, you know, no advertising for it yet. So it's it, it's it's got a good hardcore audience on our mm -hmm. Discord, but we have not yet tried to expand it beyond that. So excited about it. And at the same time, trying to do all of these really cool things with it. So, And is Deadhouse not going to be, like, would you classify it as more of an indie game or is the goal for it to be more mainstream or maybe something, something else? Yeah, I, I would say it's something else. It's not... It's definitely not a triple A game from mm -hmm. the sense of, I think the triple A game market, it's going to have, it's going to have triple A production value in mm -hmm. the sense that we want the highest quality artwork. We want the highest quality characters. 
We want all that. But where the AAA, I think it was Don Daglo at a GDC once defined AAA, it would, I think is one of the most meaningful ways where the, the marketing budget is two to three times the development budget. Mm-hmm. That's a AAA game. It's And with a AAA game, you have all of this sort of marketing that gets thrown on and there's all of this kind of what I would say pressure on launch to sell like a million copies, Mm -hmm. like out of the gate the first week or several million copies. And I think, I think where we want to go with dead house is we want to create that beachhead and then iterate. That's what I really has drawn me to free to play games. And if you look at some of our past titles, I still have people talking to me about legacy of Kane all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, can you, will you work on the sequel Uh, eternal darkness what's going on with that franchise and i think with the free-to-play market and if you look at warframe's a really good example of how they started really small and became quite big Mm -hmm. i i think that kind of model is how i'd position dead house so i would say a a triple a free-to-play you know if that makes sense and the great thing about the free-to-play market is without your community you cannot survive Mm-hmm. So you can't just market over everyone's head, make all these promises, and then, you know, six months to a year later, release a sequel or a DLC. It's always constantly going and always constantly uh, iterating, which is what I love. So when we dropped the demo, you know, in 2022, we updated it pretty much every week for about six months, and we got mm-hmm. massive amounts of community feedback. And it really improved the game quite a bit. And it was far from finished, but it was, and it was just a combat demo with Arena and a vampire. And we're, you know, we're testing out some stuff, but I think that's the model for the future. Well, it goes, it goes way beyond that, frankly. I think that's going to be the future of all video games and free to play from what I've seen now dominates economically mm-hmm. the marketplace, which has really created all these opportunities for new things, which excites me. So yeah. And is, so is Dead House Sonata still, is a plan to have some sort of NFTs or blockchain tie-ins or anything like that? Well, so, so no and yes is the answer. Okay. Um, so, and this is a great, great segue to start talking about mm-hmm. blockchain. Blockchain right now has a really, especially in the video game industry, has a real toxic reputation for I would say rug pulls and scams. And, you know, I, I recently mentioned this blockchain conference, which was the first one I ever went to where we connected mm-hmm. again, just, you know, late last year. And I, I had no idea what to expect, but what I got there, what I got out of that, I was like, oh, these are people that just love blockchain. Mm-hmm. They're trying to make some games with this really cool technology that they love. And interestingly enough, which is a lot of people don't know this, it's very hard to make video games. Really, really <laughs> hard. As a matter of fact, the process itself is completely opaque. Mm-hmm. And until you're in it, and I would say shipped at least one game, maybe two or three, mm-hmm. you really don't know what it takes. You don't know what you're going to encounter. And so I think what's happened in the blockchain community is that they've just made a ton of mistakes, mm-hmm. especially with NFTs on, you know, in the marketplace where people are, really disappointed with what they're getting. Mm-hmm. And so the the answer is, are we using blockchain technology? Yes, absolutely. Are we going to have NFTs? Actually, no, we're not. Mm-hmm. We're doing blockchain without NFTs. We've, we've got a bunch of concepts and you can see it out there on the internet. 
I think there's a lot of inherent problems with NFTs and we've looked at things like non-fungible objects and that's a whole rabbit hole. But what we're trying to do, blockchain technology is very powerful. Mm -hmm. And there is this misconception out there. I've seen it a lot on a ton of influencers where they're saying things like blockchain technology doesn't give you anything that the traditional database can't, mm -hmm. which is not true. One thing that blockchain technology can give you that all of these other traditional means so far can't is a proof of ownership, decentralized proof of ownership, even better. Mm -hmm. And But what I'm finding right now in the video game industry is there's such a negative perception of it. I think it's going to take some time to correct. So we are using some underlying blockchain technology in the sense of we're going to be doing ethical free-to-play. So if you don't want to spend money, you never have to. But we're going to have this layer of authentication, completely seamless, that we think gamers are really going to like. And if they don't want to deal with it, they don't have to. And I think that's going to be the key. Mm -hmm. So a lot of groups that have gone out and sold NFTs and kind of done these white papers, that's very dangerous. <laughs> if you, you're inheriting what's what we call in the video game industry is tech debt or expectation debt. Mm -hmm. And if you're raising millions and you can't deliver something that beats those expectations, and after a while, it's going to become very unlikely, you're going to run into trouble. Right. But so we are using blockchain technology, but not in, I would say, any traditional way that we've seen. Matter of fact, we've been told that. We've mm -hmm. been told some of the stuff we're doing people have not seen before, so we're excited about it. And I think the goal is we're working for gamers. And if we straight stay true to that and really give them something where they feel empowered, hopefully we can overcome this toxicity that now exists with blockchain and certainly with NFTs, because it's, it's pretty bad right now. Mm -hmm. You know, probably starting mid last year or maybe even early last year right you know to your point blockchain fell very very out of favor and then yep. towards like you know the late third quarter throughout the end of last year artificial intelligence you know became hot again right because people needed something else fuzzy to talk about that was in blockchain right i know yep. you have been or i guess deno sonata has been has had plans to implement procedural generation in, in different uh, sort of aspects of the game you know, long before it's gotten buzzy. Um, but I'm just curious, you know, given all the interest and just recent developments over the last several months, has that changed how you are viewing procedural generation or artificial intelligence in Deadhouse Sonata? Yes, absolutely. So, so it's funny. So I graduated with experience in university with neural networks back in like the early 90s or mm -hmm. late 80s. <laughs> so, and back then it wasn't cool. Now, you know, for a while, artificial intelligence is all the rage. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people see me as a writer and I guess I kind of view myself as a, a technologist that's exploring the medium and trying to figure things out. And that is one piece of the puzzle. Let me, let me explain kind of one of my motivators that I think is really going to be the future of gaming. And I think this is how blockchain and all of these underlying technologies, which are tools, are going to help us create something that's really going to change the way people experience games. So 
I mean, it did Legacy of Cain, did Eternal Darkness, won all kinds of awards. And, you know, I mentioned before that I'm an avid reader. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I read books like Lord of the Rings from Tolkien. And Tolkien was able to dedicate his entire life to that work. Mm-hmm. And he created the Cimmerillion. You know, obviously he was an academic employed to teach people while he was writing his books. And I remember sitting back and you get these accolades and awards that are totally ephemeral. But one of the things that's always driven me was I wanted to give something possibly like Tolkien, but I realized I would never get a budget to create something Mm -hmm. for 30 years or 40 years, however he created the Cimmerillion. And I felt that I felt that that opportunity was impossible. One, I didn't certainly didn't think that you know, I had the talent to maybe do what he did because, you know, the Cimmerillion and the, the the work of Lord of the Rings and the fact that it was so original for its time, it just blows everything out of the water and, and, and just changed so many things. And when you look at Lovecraft, it's the same thing. But then when I started looking at the, the cloud and I started looking at procedural generation, as we were just talking about mm-hmm. now, you look at GenVid where people can jump in and play through the streams and create content and user generated content. I started to think of going back to my early, this is where academia comes back in, in that whole school of thought that maybe mm-hmm. Shakespeare wasn't a single author. Maybe it was the whole troupe that iterated over time. And this troupe created these vastly detailed stories that, you know, in high school I hated and mm-hmm. I aspired to create them as I became a creator in the video game industry. And The idea is imagine now if we start creating these works where that's true that I don't think I could ever have a possibility of creating something like Lord of the Rings or the Mm -hmm. Cimmerillion because I could never dedicate my life. Even if I had the talent, Mm -hmm. I could never have that opportunity. But if you have millions of people start iterating on things and start contributing to that work, that does have the possibility of doing things. And that is the power of blockchain. That is the power of procedural generation, where you may be using genetic algorithms to take what people are doing and changing things as they iterate through the levels. Uh, We have people who are, you know, watching on YouTube and GenVid and affecting the narrative. And the whole idea of trying to create a a lot of people have said multiplayer games are an oxymoron to single player stories. As a matter of fact, you know, creating the spiritual successor to Blood Omen Legacy of Cain, a couple of times I've gone into the, the, I guess, some of the Facebook groups and said, hey, everyone, look at this. Mm -hmm. You know, we're creating a follow-up to Blood Omen Legacy of Cain, which there hasn't been a game in 20 years and everyone's Mm -hmm. dying for like a sequel. and, And they'd be like, this is multiplayer you suck. (laughs) We're not, you know, come back to me when you're creating a single player game. And, you know, maybe, maybe they're right. And gamers, you know, again, we work for gamers, but I think the potential, when you look at something like the SCP foundation, secure, contain, protect, I don't know if anyone's aware of that. It's this open source kind of combination of X-Files and Lovecraft, Mm -hmm. where every, where thousands and thousands of people are creating these stories and iterate together. It's become a foundational work now. People are making video games of it. It's all open source and you can find some SCP games out there. That kind of thing, I think is going to be the narrative future 
for what we create as entertainment. And I'll give one more example why mm-hmm. I think that's the case. And I'm going to use a really bad failure and mm-hmm. I'm going to, it's going to be Game of Thrones, the TV series. Mm-hmm. So I'm a huge, love the books up until like the third one and mm-hmm. until they started slowing down. And I love the series. But if you look at what happened, you had this sort of cottage industry explode where people at first started really digging the TV series the first and second year. Mm-hmm. And then people tried to guess where it was going. And then suddenly there's thousands of this cottage industry mm-hmm. YouTube channels trying to guess on where things are going. And then you have the author, George R. R. Martin, saying, hey, these guys are starting to guess where I'm taking the story. Mm-hmm. And then later on saying, hey, some of these ideas are better than some of the ones I'm mm-hmm. creating. and what the big mistake there and the lesson learned for me and the inspiration, it was inspirational in a sense, rather than embrace that community, they tried to subvert the expectations and what mm-hmm. ended up with all of these great theories from this mm-hmm. massive community of millions of people. And at first the ideas were bad, but the <laughs> good nuggets of story that then others started gravitating towards and adding on became really something mm-hmm. And they tried to subvert those expectations and reject those ideas rather than saying, these are awesome ideas. We Mm -hmm. have millions of people. You have like 12 showrunners, like you got a showrunner and probably 12 writers trying to finish this Game of Thrones series Mm -hmm. without the books. Meanwhile, you've got millions of people contributing. They should have embraced that audience. They should have done that. And so the whole idea of with the cloud and with blockchain and with procedural generation and all of these new technologies that we're talking about, imagine something that's a shared medium where we all can contribute to and be authors. I think that's what inspires me. So so back in the early days of Legacy of Cain, when, you know, I was able to create a story in a different way and overcome all the things that I hated mm-hmm. about traditional RPGs, about reading text on screen. Deadhouse Sonata, and I think some of the technologies and the things we're working on are able to now take sort of the next leap of how could we possibly create something as good as the Lord of the Rings when that maybe will never even happen again. Maybe it's a once in a thousand years mm-hmm. or something like a Shakespeare where I certainly don't think there's enough time in me or I don't have the talent, but if I had the opportunity to bring together community of millions of people, do I think we could create something at that level? I actually do. Mm -hmm. And that is something that's worth creating. And that's what inspires me to do dead house Sonata and to take it to a point of where you're playing a game You're also the creator of that game. You're also an author. And maybe your contributions are like less than 1%, but it's still yours. Mm -hmm. And the millions of people together can create something that's bigger than the sum of its parts. And I think to me, that's how all of these technologies can come together to create something that changes the way people experience games. And it's kind of the goal. It's kind of, you know, what we built Apocalypse from for that very same thing. Let's change the way people experience games. And so that excites me. And that's where uh, more than anything, that's where I hope we can take Deadhouse Sonata. So what are some of the ways actually that either players or viewers of streamers are actually going to be able to impact the game and impact the story? So just let me dive in a little bit Mm -hmm. into Genvid, who's a partner, it's a really yeah. cool technology. So imagine, Chris, that you're playing the game and you're streaming it. 
Mm -hmm. We insert code into that stream so people can literally interact with that stream and affect the game real time through mm -hmm. code. So even though you don't have the game, you can actually play the game. Mm -hmm. So you can set up things like Dungeon Masters where you're affecting the game like opening doors and mm -hmm. changing the mood of say a dungeon or a city or dropping down monsters. You can literally interact with things real time into the game and affect that gameplay. But you can also do other things like LARP. Like say you wanna take over something like a shopkeeper and you wanna go in and buy a bunch of swords and daggers mm -hmm. or equipment for your next quest. Well, it just so happens that I might be watching your stream and I may jump in and then I might become the shopkeeper and I'll interact with you. And that part of that narrative will be on the fly changing depending mm -hmm. in your experience, depending on what I may do in that shop. Or I might be able to give different options for the quest. There's so many things that can happen. And it's the idea of what I would say dynamic agency is where the real power is. And as much as I'm, my background's in artificial intelligence, you just, the whole idea of inserting a person into a scenario, you can't beat that. Mm -hmm. It's just, you, there's just so many different personalities. And, you know, going back to EverQuest, another game I used to love, what I think my biggest memory of EverQuest was this character. I don't know if you ever played EverQuest or, but probably like a couple minutes of it. Yeah, it's, it. so it was an early MMO. Yeah. And it was way before World of Warcraft where I guess some design fundamentals were not really truly understood. Mm -hmm. So you'd be at this, this one place where there's a beach and you'd have like level five or six characters. Mm -hmm. And then literally a little while over, you'd have these giants that were level 50. Mm -hmm. And if you, for some reason, aggroed them, bad news, everyone yeah. would die, right? And there was this one guy called Pinky the Bard. <laughs> and he was a bard. And bards had AOE spells that did mm -hmm. damage. He'd strip off all of his clothes, run around naked, and just train all of the giants on everyone. And he'd make videos. Mm -hmm. It'd be Pinky the Bard videos. And more than anything else, I remember watching these Pinky the Bard videos where this, this character would go around just wiping things out. And that level of entertainment to me just enhanced, you know, it's it's really metagame and people talk about the metaverse. Yeah. I, I don't know about the metaverse and all this VR and stuff. So I'm not buying into any of that. But what I am buying into are these multiple mediums where you can contribute like Pinky the Bard because mm -hmm. that made it for me. And when I think about EVE Online, all the stories that happened outside of the game really enhance the game. I think that's what the metaverse is truly going to be once it gets itself sorted mm -hmm. out. But it's those kind of experiences where I think technologies like GenVid can really lend themselves to creating engagement that people just aren't used to and that I think will take it to the next level. So I hope that makes sense. Definitely. Yeah. And it sounds really exciting. You know, I think from what I've seen, at least online, you know, the art looks great. I've seen some videos of the game, so I'm personally definitely excited to, to check it out. Do you have any idea when it actually is going to launch? Well, we've already announced to the dismay of our community that we're not launching next year. Okay. So, or, sorry, this, this year. year we're not launching in 2023. Mm -hmm. uh, we made the announcement right at the right on the 28th. We were just like, look, mm -hmm. we don't want to get people's expectations. 
We don't think we're going to be ready next year. Mm -hmm. It's possible 2024, mm -hmm. but we, we want to wait and see how things go. But yeah, so we still have a while to go. We're still early and it's a really aggressive game. We're trying to do mm -hmm. some really aggressive things. And the goal is a couple things. We want people to feel as they play the game that not only is there a narrative for them, but they're part of the world and that they can change the world. It's dynamic. And it's the choice in, in a sense, I don't want to be too cliched, but your choice does matter and you'll mm -hmm. be able to see the ramifications of your actions. And so will everyone else playing. So it's a, a living, breathing world with sort of the detail of Dwarf Fortress that's dynamic and a lot of people are, are moving towards. Mm -hmm. So your impact can be significant, but you have to weigh it against all the yeah. hopefully millions of other people who are playing and the sort of direction of where we want to take it. That's kind of one of the things we're doing. And then we're doing, I would say, all of the things that we're talking about having this sort of shared vision with the community on how we can create something that people not only feel that they're participants and they have agency, but they also have ownership. And that's where I think a lot of the blockchain stuff is going to come in. And, you know, doing it in a way that's very ethical and, you know, won't upset gamers. I think that's key. Mm -hmm. And those are the, th those are sort of the two main things we're going to be working towards with all of these other supplemental technologies that we've been talking about here. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it sounds really, really ambitious and I am really excited to, you know, see sort of how it turns out and to, to get my hands on it when I can, but yeah, just shifting gears, you know, sort of as a concluding question, right? So, you know, you've been in the industry for quite a long time. You know, you've accomplished mm -hmm. quite a bit, but I'm sure there's a lot more that you still want to accomplish, which is why you're still doing this, right? So what are some of the things that you have yet to accomplish that you would like to, you know, with Deadhouse Sonata and the Apocalypse or, you know, just in general? I would really fundamentally, I had long discussions with a lot of my peers about what we wanted to do and get out of the gaming industry. My goal is to give something more, to give back more than when I came in and I think with certainly with eternal darkness and the sanity system and sort of the narratives and the quantum mechanic ideas and with legacy of Kane and sort of the narrative stories there, I, we had an impact, but <laughs> I didn't have a chance to fundamentally change the industry. Mm -hmm. And my hope is to be able to leave something, whether it be dead house or some of the technologies that we're, we work on and other people usher in, with ideas from the stuff that we've worked on to fundamentally change the industry. I want to change it in, in such a way that it is an overwhelming positive for the gamers where they'll be like, wow, how did we ever even think about games before this? That's, that's what I'd like to accomplish before. I would love to say I have another 30 years in me, mm -hmm. but I don't know. <laughs> so before my time is done, and that's what I would really like to do. Awesome. I mean, I think that's an amazing, very, very ambitious goal, but I'll definitely be rooting for you. But yeah, just want to say thanks for taking the time. This is a great conversation. My pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.